This is better than my, uh, we, we did a, a class this last week. Uh, we do like a three-week class for the nine principles, the nine ministry principles. And right when I'm getting started, someone like cracks open a can. It's like, you know, I'm like, yeah, we'll need that. So I didn't hear that. So that's a, that's a good sign. But uh, man, it is, it is good being here. I, I guess, uh, I don't know, inflation has hit all church retreat because you got me here on Wednesday night. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where George Grace is or Joe McCaig or anyone like that, but uh, so uh, at Living Faith, we tried to keep it quiet who the main speakers were. Um, I, was, I was, you know, glad to brag on Tony and, and Alan, but I was like, you know, and we'll see. We'll see who else we can find. So, but, uh, <laughs> but you, guys are, you guys are here, so uh, let's make the most of it. Uh, my name is Dan Renault. I am the pastor of Living Faith and Lee Summit. That was a church plant. We don't really use that term anymore. Uh, about five years ago, from Midtown Baptist Temple. And uh, guys, it is an honor to be here this evening. It's an honor to be speaking in front of all of you. I consider it a special privilege to be speaking with you tonight. And now secondly, um, some of you guys might be noticing, those who are sitting closer, you're saying, okay, so uh, um, what's going on with your eyes, okay? Uh, and, and number one, number one, that's, uh, that's a little off-putting and uh, a, a, that's a little forward of your questioning right now, okay? So I, I take offense to that and uh, kind of a sensitive topic. No, seriously, um, <laughs> the last few months I have actually been dealing with a, a thyroid issue which has caused swelling around my eyes. And so uh, now when I, I speak with anyone, I always have this very intense gaze, uh, which if you knew me, that has only increased now. Uh, but here's the deal. You know, at Living Faith, I've noticed that what the devil meant for evil, God has used it for good. And, and so, so, this is a joke, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> I feel like I was leading people on too far. Uh, no, man, I, I've had these eye issues and, you know, the conviction level has just gone through the roof, really. Uh, whenever I'm speaking with people, uh, when I look at people in the audience, uh, you know, man, I can just sense the fear of the Lord. Uh, <laughs> in their eyes, it's, it's like they're literally cowering in their seats when I get really intense with them. And so that's good, but people are responding in the services. All I have to do is make eye contact. I just make eye contact and I, I you know, look like this and uh, people say, yes, yes, don't hurt me. You know, they, they start, you know, whatever, whatever you want. I don't understand that last part of the conviction, but anyway, it, man, I'll tell you, God has been good, and I, I do appreciate uh, Midtown Baptist Temple. I know you've been praying for me. I know our church has as well, um, and Harvest, thanks um, for not praying, but no, uh, <laughs> I haven't, uh, really, I haven't been telling a lot of people, but I do appreciate those who have been praying uh, for me and our family, and God's been good. Really, all kidding aside, I, I should say, we, we truly are living in a time period, we are living in a world right now where the church has lost its vision. We, we, we are absolutely living in a, a day and an age where not the world, to expect that the world would have vision is, is a, a, a wrong conclusion anyway. The, the church has lost its vision and unfortunately our, our lack of sight has not brought about greater conviction, surprise, surprise. Rather, we find the blind are 
absolutely leading the blind, and we find that in our pulpits, and we find that in many of our churches. As truth has become blurry, the character of God becomes hard to distinguish. And I think this is our first slide, if you will. As the truth becomes blurry, the character of God becomes hard to distinguish. The mission of God becomes whatever we want it to be. Our concerns for sin become relative and our focus on self looks to the good within where we are no longer having that desperate dependence on God. Because the truth has become blurry, because the church has lost its grip on the very thing that gives us the the principles by which we live by, the very foundation of our faith, we find that the character of God is is becoming increasingly hard for us to, to recognize. The mission of God, it really becomes whatever we want it to be that week or that season. Our our concerns for sin, they become relative and our focus on self looks to the good within and we're not desperate for the Lord to move. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would use tonight's time to challenge us to, God, I just pray that that, uh, we would hear from you. Please help us to see how we need to be a people of eternal investment, how we need to eschew all of the things that are robbing us of God knowing your intentions, knowing your word, knowing your desires for our lives. And so Lord, I I, I thank you um, for God, what you are doing in this place. I pray that God, please help me not to get in the way. Uh, as Pastor Chris Best was saying earlier, help, help none of us to miss what you intend. And so, God, please have your way today, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So we're, we're looking at, for many in the room, English Bible exegesis this week. And yet, right now, Samuel David, and I don't know where he is, I can't, I can't see him. Uh, that's probably not a joke, but it kind of sounds like it now. Uh, he's translating, though, Back in, back in the room back here. Oh, there you are, there you are, yeah. Samuel David is translating in Spanish, and so, man, what we should be saying, this is, this is proper Bible exegesis for us this week. This is, a, this is an old-fashioned Bible camp. In our fellowship of churches, it has been commonly said that there are only two things that will last forever. The word of God and the souls of men. Now, if this is truly the case, if this truly is the case, then it proves to reason that there is no greater investment that you could make in your entire lifetime than to invest God's word into the souls of men. If there are, and many of you guys have heard that before, but it bears repeating Especially in a room this size, I can only imagine that for some, that might be the first time you've heard that statement. Of the, of the, of the many things we can consider of eternal value, of eternal investment, what we find is that there are only two things that will last forever, the word of God and the souls of men. And if that is the case, then it, then it, then it bears to reason that our greatest investment would be to place God's word into the souls of men. No matter your location, no matter your age, no matter your economic status or your education, 
Throughout this week during the evening sessions, we will be addressing our need to have a proper English Bible exegesis or a Spanish Bible exegesis. Amid all the uncertainties in the world, the double-minded and unstable nature of man, all the fluid definitions of identity, gender, and our reinventions of history, it is becoming increasingly important that the church learns not a political position, but that we learn our biblical position that we grow in our ability to provide the world, that we as the church would once again begin to grow in our faith, that we would grow, that we would be fruit that God says would remain. Not that fruit would just come, not that the numbers would increase, but that the numbers would become deeper, that the fruit would actually be enjoyable for the Father to take in, that we would be mature. By God's grace, we would be a people that not only uh, are familiar with the, the word of God, familiar with a biblical position, but that we would grow in one. And that we would grow in our ability to provide the world with an eternal and absolute perspective. Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe unto them that call evil good and, and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And yet, I believe that many of us in this room know that these are the very days that we're living in right now. That, that wrong is called right and right is called wrong. And in fact, many of us who choose to, to share our faith with others are running into this on a daily basis where the gospel is now being perceived as either hate speech or in some way insensitive to the plethora of ideas and, and ways of life that are present today. To that, many of us would say, yes and amen, that the church needs to have an answer for them who, who walk in darkness, to them who are without. The church needs to provide that answer. But, but, if we're unable to direct people to that sweet and good and perfect light through a right handling of the word of God, then we run the risk of answering with the same emotionalism and uncertainty that is present in the world. I believe that every one of us knows that, that the word of God demands that we provide an answer to the lost world, that we would provide an answer towards them who are without. And yet I find even though we understand that principle or even that verse in some regard, many of us are unable to properly do that with a right handling of the word of God. And so we understand the, the, the truth of God's word, but the only way we can respond to the, the conflicts or even the discussions that are present in the world is with the very same emotionalism and uncertainty that is present in the world. Because we don't have a, a handle on the scriptures today. Listen, listen. The world doesn't need your emotionally or spiritually frustrated hypothesis or political ideology. 
The, the last thing the world needs is, is a Christian who doesn't know their Bible and aligns more with potentially a conservative agenda than it does with a, with a biblical agenda. And what we have here, in your, well, why would that happen? Why would I become one of those individuals who would respond to the world in kind? Why would that be, be found in me? Because we don't have an anchor. Because we don't have a foundation. Because we don't have an absolute. And because of that, the way we respond is with the same vitriol or confusion that the world has when they speak to us. In that, we become emotionally and spiritually frustrated and all we can provide is some type of spiritual hypothesis rather than the absolute of Bible authority. You see, before someone hears your hypothesis, your political ideology, even just your spiritual ideas, we need to realize that the world doesn't need that. They need to hear from their creator. They need to hear from their creator, which means that they need a messenger, they need the hands and feet, they need, they need a spokesman to preach the gospel to them. They need a messenger who is both scripturally sound and spiritually strong. Second Timothy two, I'm sorry, Second Timothy four, verses two and four. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away, it says, they will turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. We are seeing this turning away right before our eyes, amen? Not only, and, 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 and I think many of you guys, when I say something like that, we, we, we say, well, well, we can see how there is a turning away that's present in the world, but my audience is actually not founded in the world. My audience is founded with you. The turning away, I, what does the world turn away from? They're already turned away. What have they repented from? They're already lost in their sins. No, no, what we're speaking of and, and what I'm speaking of in the context of, of this setting is, is that, that we've turned away. That we have, have bankrupt our faith. That we have lost interest in the foundational understanding of God's word. And we've turned to fables. Reading, reading books about Christianity by, by authors who have a certain number of letters behind their name rather than the present word of God that is alive. So we see that this turning away is, is, is present today and it's happening right before our eyes but not only in the lost world but more importantly in the church. You say, well, well not true, not here. Not at Midtown, not at Living Faith, not at Harvest not at the many churches that are present here. To, no, that's not true. You're fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself. Sound doctrine is being traded in for fables of man's imagination. Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Because of this, we see that, that there is a present need. Don't you see it? 
There's a present need right now, today, this evening. There's a present need. Don't look to your neighbor. Don't look to your spouse. Don't, don't think about your kids for you, for me. There's a present need for each and every one of us to not only read our Bibles, but to also unpack our Bibles, to pull out the treasure that is found within its pages. There's a present need for us to understand the words of God, to, to begin to learn how to bring about personal application. And there is a present need for us to use our Bibles. God, God forbid that, that we become so diligent as students who, who read the scriptures and yet we, we don't seek ways to unpack it to understand it, or to use it. By God's grace, as we unpack the word, as we, as we begin to pull out the treasure that's found in its words, and, and by God's grace, as we begin to understand it for our personal, our personal well-being, and by God's grace, as we begin to use the word of God, what may come out of that is the hope of giving an absolute answer, not our opinions, to a world that is in need of real truth. In this, we realize that the world needs a contextually sound answer to their fabricated construct. Nehemiah 8.8 says, so they read in the book and the law of God. How did they read the book? Distinctly and gave the sense and caused their caused them to understand the reading. In this passage, the word of God was distinctly read. Each word, guys, when you, when you think of that, that word distinctly, how many times does that word come up in your Bibles? One time, one time. They say that the word of God was read distinctly. When you, when you, when you read that, what, what, what they're suggesting, what it's, what it's saying right there is every word, each word, Word, as they read the words, they were distinctly read. Every word was measured and given a proper inflection. As they gave the sense, what we find is that as they were, they were giving the sense to the congregation, what we see is that there was a, a mining, there was a mining of, of the exact phrasing Every word was measured, and from that place of, of, of proper inflection, we find that after that there was then a, a mining involved of the scriptures, of the exact phrasing and the words, and, and then from that mining they began to bring it to light for the people. And as the word of God was brought out to the light, it says that they caused the people to understand and we see that, that what was read, what was read in Nehemiah 8.8 8, was now given, please hear this, with the intention that it would be applied. Every word mattered. Every word was measured. Every word was, was properly spoken. 
and every phrase and, and the context of the scripture that was presented was mined out and, and the truth was being pulled out with the hope that the congregation would apply the truth and live accordingly. In light of Nehemiah 8.8, 8, it is time that our reading reinforces a right revival in us that our reading would, would actually influence our living so that his words would become our words. But this can only happen, listen guys, we, 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 we all wanna say, yes, that's what I want, that's what I want, I, I want that, I want his words to become my words. But this can only happen, church, when we realize that we are holding in our hands a Bible that is both perfectly preserved by God and wonderfully alive. It is not that the Bible is perfectly preserved and that we can trust it. It's not, although that's, that's significant and, and amazing and, 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 and beyond my understanding how, how the Lord uh, uh, did that great work with our scriptures. I praise the Lord for it. But not only is it perfectly preserved, but it is also alive. It is quick and powerful, sharper than any human philosophy able to pierce and divide and discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. That is, if you choose to learn how to use it. Wow, Hebrews 4.12, what, what a powerful verse. Only as powerful as you use it. When we consider the word exegesis, for some this may be the first time you, you've heard of a word like this. That is obviously unless you go to Harvest Baptist Church in Blue Springs, <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> where you know Alan has, has somehow found a way of connecting exegesis with like the latest TikTok trend. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how he does it, honestly. It's, it's, it's a spiritual gift. <laughs> but but maybe, maybe you're, you're at living faith and you're like, exa what? Like exa, exa Jesus. Okay, different, different, but, but sounds the same, right? Yeah, harvest people, you're laughing because you know, you, you know this word. Uh, now, so maybe this is a new word for you. Maybe it's not. But for the rest of us, what, 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 is, what does exa Jesus mean? This week we're gonna be talking about English Bible exegesis. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. I'm here, I guess. <laughs> okay. Exegesis is the reading out of a text. We have the text. There is a, a reading out of the text. It is to draw out the meaning. We, are, we have the text present and we, were, we are allowing the text to, to draw out of us, out of it, the meaning. On the flip side, we have another word, eisegesis. Not like, like I'm Jesus, but, but eisegesis, yeah, yeah, again, that, that was a bad joke. I was doing so good, too. I, was, I, think, I, was, I think I was doing good. Eisegesis, okay, so exegesis is, is pulling out of the text. Eisegesis is the reading into a text. There is an assumption, please hear that word, there is an assumption on what the author meant. Now this can sometimes be based upon historical evidence of the day or by a personal inference or interpretation. 
In this manner, the student is not concerned with the individual words, but rather the thoughts behind those words, which sounds like dynamic equivalency, doesn't it? Many times there is a desire to read what was not written and a desire to hear what was not said. Now there's a third word that I also would like us to address tonight and and that is the word, that's hermeneutics. A biblical hermeneutic, as, as we would see it, seeks to implement, and so we have exegesis, we have eisegesis, and we have hermeneutics. A biblical hermeneutic, as we would see it, seeks to implement biblical principles to enable and establish sound study of the word of God. These would be the keys that we use to unlock the Bible. These would be the principles that we have that that help us to understand properly the scriptures. So then, as we open up the scriptures, what do we do? Well, we have some examples. When we open the scriptures, we begin by Bible students. What do we do? We look for the context, right? We begin by looking for the context of the passage. We, we don't want to take God's word out of context. No one likes their words taken out of context. Neither does God. So, so when we're reading the scriptures, we look for periods, If if this is going to be a a time this week where we learn how to more properly understand God's word, well, then one of the most simple things is when you're reading the Bible and and you're thinking that God is about to say something, look for a period, right? And if you're reading Paul, you're going to find maybe like, you know, six semicolons and, you know, a colon and then like an emoji. He he, he does, (laughs) Paul did emojis before all of us knew what they were, but but you're looking for a period, and it, you know, we, we look for question marks. So often you find that, that, that false teachers will use question marks to provide uh, doctrinal positions, and, and a question mark was not intended to say, this is what's happening, it was, it was meant to interrogate. It was meant to, uh, well, ask a question, <laughs> to get us to consider something. We look for conjunctive words like but, and, if, therefore. How many times have you started a chapter that says therefore? And you're like, whatever, <laughs> who cares? You need to read, what, what's it there for, right? Go back to chapter two. If chapter three starts with the, uh, therefore, or but, well, well, what was before? You see, but here's the thing, as, as we, Sometimes we become lazy in our study and we're not looking for those simple things. You're like, well, I'm not that educated. Literally, guys, all I'm saying is look for a period. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean look, look for the, the sentence to end. Is this a question mark? Are you looking for a but, uh, so, therefore, and? You're looking for those things because then what you can do in the same way that we do every day in our communication, we can say, wow, I think that this might be a connection to another thought. Maybe there's another thought involved that I actually need to be considering. We then, we, we look to understand the, which people group is being addressed. Man, so often, you know, like I, I, I've given the example so many times where I write a letter to my wife and I say, hey, Eric, Eric, can you give this letter to my wife? Just please, Eric's like, sure, it's to my wife, got it. He starts reading it, he's like, wow. hey, Dan, I, I know we were tight, but man, that, that means a lot. 
I love you too, right? And, and, and so, who is it written to? It's written to my wife, and, but Eric's trying to take it, and man, so often in the Bible when we're reading through the scriptures, we don't just ask the simple question, hey, who is this written to? The Jews? Is it written to the Gentiles? Is it written to the church? And so, so we ask those questions. What time is it? What time is it? Well, you know, time for you to be done, right? Right? I don't know. What time is it? Is it before or after the fall of man? Right? Is it before or after the giving of the law? Is it before or after Christ's death on the cross? Is it before or after Christ's second coming? Right? How many times do you talk to someone? Maybe they're a Christian, maybe they're not, maybe they're inquiring, and, and they want to go to where? Matthew. Right? And they want to they study Matthew out with you and, and, and they start to provide things that, man, if we just do some simple study and we understand how the Bible begins to divide itself, we're like, man, uh, most of Matthew is written before Christ actually died on the cross. Which says, for many of us, if we, we've, 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 we've grown in the word to this degree, we understand, well, that's the dispensation of the age of the law. Well, that, that, I should probably pay attention to that. You guys follow where I'm going? We look for the first mention of a word. We, we seek out God's definition of that word. We, we look for the full mention where God is fully declaring his mind on a topic. We, we establish the three applications of scripture. It's important for us to, to, to consider when, when the book of Ruth says that it was during the time of judges that Elimelech went back into the land of Moab. Well, I probably should pay attention to that. In the book of Judges, it says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Right? We just read Proverbs 16 that says, man, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. What's the historical application? Can that help us understand the present time? What's the doctrinal application? What's the personal application? And we seek out ways by which God will confirm his word as we compare scripture with scripture, using cross-references so that we are not taking God's word out of context, but that we are recognizing this is God's interpretation of his word, not mine. Guys, these are just a few of the ways in which we can protect ourselves from misinterpreting the words of God. As we apply these Bible study principles, we create a systematic approach to understanding the scriptures. So in terms of, of hermeneutics, exegesis and, and eisegesis, look at it this way, hermeneutics is, is the theory. Hermeneutics is the theory, exegesis is our practice, and eisegesis is hypothesis. Our hermeneutic thus becomes the framework of our actual exegesis. Without a strategy, your study is limited at best and or dangerous and misleading at worst. Remember the first time you went to Bible study with your friends? It was your first time there, and everyone's just like slinging it, man. Boom, boom, boom. And, and you're just going, I have no idea, but, but next time I'm bringing it, right? And, and man, you know, the, the second time you come up, you're a hot mess. That thing is all over the place, but you're trying, which is awesome. Check it out. If we learn a proper hermeneutic that kind of keeps us in the lines, then that affects our exegesis. Our theory thus affects our practice, does it not? But yet without it, man, our study will be limited at best, but guys, dangerous or misleading at worst. The theory then informs the practice, which protects us from our private interpretation and hypothesis. 
2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. From this we realize that our eisegesis or our hypothesis of scripture, our best guesses and presuppositions are simply private interpretations that challenge God's singular authorship. When you begin to apply your best guess or your hypothesis to the word of God, what we find is that you begin to challenge the singular authority of God. So then, if we can recognize that our hypothesis, our eisegesis is irrelevant, then that leaves us with our theory and practice. And yet, unfortunately, what I find in the church is that many of us understand the theories of Scripture but are lacking in the actual practice of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, it is time that that the theories we say we believe turn into an independent practice. It's time our theory becomes fact. It's time we stop listening to the YouTube preachers and we begin doing the work of the Bereans opening the scriptures to prove out the truth of his word for ourselves. So if you would, with the time we have remaining, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter six. In this chapter, this closing chapter, Paul is addressing servants and masters, the rich and the poor, teachers and soldiers. With each of these groups, Paul is challenging them to put off their temporal focus for an eternal one to put off the old man and put on the new. In the same way of of, of us having a proper exegesis, and in the same way a proper exegesis provides eternal perspective, the slave and the soldier have a lot to teach us in regard to having an eye on the eternal. Let's walk through this passage together, starting with the context of the book. First Timothy which is one of the pastoral epistles, was written by Paul to Timothy, his son in the Lord. We find that in verses one and two. Great attention in, in the book of 1 Timothy is given to the character and the responsibilities of a shepherd. Written in the early 60s between Paul's first and second imprisonment, Timothy is now pastoring in Ephesus and you can find these, these truths out in the book of Acts. We find in this book that, that, and during this time, especially in Ephesus, that false doctrine, false doctrine is abounding in the first century. In fact, you find that the word doctrine appears in 1 Timothy eight times. Very small book, and yet this word keeps popping up. Paul keeps addressing this young pastor over and over again, and he keeps bringing up the part of doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. In 1 Timothy 1.3, only three verses into the book, it says, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, what do I want you to do? That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The very first thing that Paul tells Timothy to do, he says, listen, false doctrine is abounding. And if you wanna, if you wanna have a, a healthy church that will make disciples that will evangelize and, and continue to spread the gospel throughout the world, you are going to need to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. If we are to provide an overview, we see that in chapter one, Timothy is told to stand on right doctrine and to be a pattern for the church. Chapter two, Timothy is told and, and taught how to pray. 
In chapter 3, Timothy is instructed on how to look for certain character qualities as it relates to the leadership of the church. In chapter 4, Timothy is charged to warn the church against growing apostasy. Chapter 5, Timothy is taught on how to minister to different parts of the body of Christ. And lastly, in chapter 6, where we will find ourselves today, Paul tells Timothy to consider our position, our position as slaves and soldiers. So then, as we look at chapter 6, what do we already know? We know in this book that false doctrine and false teachers were, were seeking to corrupt the word of God even in the first century. This is not a new trend. This is not a new fad. And the reason why false teachers had a, had a footing, the reason why false teachers had such an ability to speak these things, we find is because there was a lack of what? Personal, proper exegesis. Because we are not willing to allow the theory to become actual practice. Those who do not know the word stand on a pulpit of lies, thus declaring the words of God. And we know it's wrong, but yet we don't know how to say it's wrong. Because our theory, and we could communicate all the different ways in which this is our hermeneutic and this is what keeps us in line. The problem is, is you never turn the theory into practice. And it robs you of having the ability to, to say when someone is speaking falsehood, listen, that's not true because the word of God says this. Due to a lack of, of personal, proper exegesis, false teachers, listen, they had the same influence in the first century as they even do today. And because of that, Paul sees the importance of instructing Timothy on how to hold on to sound doctrine. Timothy, I need to tell you how to pray. I need to tell you what, what qualifications are, are there for a bishop or a deacon. Timothy, I need to teach you about the dangers of apostasy. Timothy, you need to know how to have right relationships in the church. And lastly, how to be servants to the Lord. Now on the surface, as, as we dig into chapter six, it's going to appear as if Paul is making some just some closing statements towards servants and masters, right? It's the last chapter of the book. Oh, Paul is just making his, his, his ending statements. But as we unpack the passage, as we apply a right hermeneutic to our study, we discover that this last chapter is more than just a laundry list of closing statements. Rather, Paul's final words are all about an eternal investment, and yet false teaching and false assumptions are threatening the health of the body. As you look closer, you'll notice that the great vice of money is laced throughout this entire passage. And how appropriate that a seasoned pastor would warn a younger pastor on the pitfalls concerning a financial focus over an eternal focus. Verse one, it says, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, historically speaking, it is estimated that half of the Roman population was comprised of slaves during the time of Paul's writing. Half of the population there was a society of haves and have-nots. 
And while the notion of slavery is egregious, it was nonetheless a clear and present reality in Timothy's day. It was a reality that Timothy had to navigate. Now now what's fascinating about this, this, this chapter and what's fascinating about this first century of Christianity is that both servants and masters were coming to Christ. Wow, what a blessing. And Timothy needed to know how to minister in light of this new phenomenon. How was Timothy to lead a church which was now comprised of both slaves and masters under the same house? In one sense, the master was was socially still over the slave, but spiritually speaking, the two were now brothers in Christ. This new reality was causing confusion and division in the church. And yet a proper exegesis was necessary. You see, if there was a proper exegesis in this place, we would find, and that's exactly what Paul is trying to produce in Timothy, is that when a proper exegesis is applied, that unity would be found once again. And yet what does Paul tell Timothy? He says to the slave, He says, the slave is not to despise his believing master, but rather to continue in his service to them. Colossians 3, 22 and 23. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You're like, okay, what are we talking about? Uh, Listen, you're the slave. (laughs) I'm the slave. Uh, We're not talking about first century Church, uh, we, we, we gotta start putting ourselves in the position to where, we, to where we recognize that God is wanting to speak to us tonight. So then, despite the slave's lack and, 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 and his or her apparent inequalities, they were still expected to serve their masters as unto the Lord. And yet, everyone in the room goes, that doesn't seem fair. Based upon my hypothesis, based upon my assumptions, But listen, if we're paying attention to what Paul is trying to tell Timothy, we see that Paul has just now provided Timothy with a doctrinal picture where Christ is both our brother but also our master. He is our companion and friend and yet also our Lord. And yet if we are the slave, you can can see how, man, you can see how, that's cool and I like like the doctrine but, but that doesn't fix this situation. You see, you can see how if you were the slave, If I don't have the right and eternal focus, knowing that we are all servants of God, that when we set our focus on the present inequalities, our present plight, that when we lose sight of a proper biblical perspective, that we also end up losing our peace and contentment as well. From this we see how a right biblical lens, no matter your plight, No matter where you are, whether you're slave or master, no matter where your education lies, your your social status lies, no matter where you stand right now, I want to tell you that without that right biblical lens, you will not be able to have a right focus. And a lack of good personal Bible study will bring about an unhealthy focus. Now if we continue on in verse 3, it appears that Paul, he's He's shifting gears. But in reality, the, the conversation is still, it's, it's, it's temporarily focused on money. 
So what, what is Paul trying to do? Why is he, chapter six of 1 Timothy, why is he so focused on money? Why is, he, why is he having all these conversations with Timothy? Verse three, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. What's that word? Supposing. Supposing. There, there are teachers in the church who are supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Do you see how it says that there were some who supposed? Instead of applying a right exegesis to scripture, there were some whose eisegesis got in the way and they supposed, well, it just seems right to me. I know what the Bible says, but I just can't really understand. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't understand because you haven't got the sense of the word. You were not reading the words distinctly. And you begin to suppose, I just don't know if I follow that. I don't know if I can buy that. And there were teachers that supposed that a person's financial worth equated to their godliness. Their lack of personal study led to non-biblical conclusions. Now, now time out just for a second. Can, can you see? There are teachers in this day, in this setting, in, in first century Ephesus, who are saying, hey, listen, gain is godliness. If you are financially set, that must mean something about your spirituality. You must be a good Christian. Not that we struggle with that today in our churches. <laughs> the level of what we sometimes call a deacon is just simply a person who can give and has been faithful for the last 20 years. Please. Can you see how this false teaching, the false teachers that were present saying, gain is godliness. Can you see how this false teaching would have had a direct and detrimental effect on the slaves and masters? In this very setting. What are you thinking if you're a slave? I guess, I have a, I guess I'm not like, I guess I don't have a right walk with God. Right? Notice how Paul responds. He says, now some of you have caused great harm due to this false teaching. You need to withdraw from these, these guys. But, but, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there, there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and, and to many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and, perdu and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You guys know that the, that word pierce, you can look it up in the Bibles. The only time that you see the word pierced as if it's doing harm to yourself is in regards to money. You see, if money is the issue, then contentment is the answer. And contentment brings about satisfaction in our place and position. From this position, we stop clamoring for the things God has not given us, knowing that our treasure is not in this life, but in the life to come. 
Once again, Paul is directing Timothy to have an eternal investment, an eternal focus, where both the slave and the master are complete in Christ, according to the scriptures. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Hebrews 13.5, it also says, let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Well, you know what? That sounds like Genesis 15.1. The first time you'll ever find the word reward. I am thy exceeding great reward, the Lord says to Abram. He is enough. Verse 11, it says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Guys, all through this chapter we're reading it and we've seen a focus on money and how it causes problems and yet now we're told to fight like a soldier and you're going, wait, what? (laughs) Masters and servants and even false teachers, I kind of get it, but now he says fight the good fight of faith and There's this weird shift now where Paul is now addressing us to be soldiers and that soldiers lay hold on eternal life. How does does this fit within the context of this chapter? Well, let's compare spiritual with spiritual. 2 Timothy 2, verses three and four. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So guys, as, as, we, as we, 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 we we're entering into this time of closing, I want you to check this out. Do you want to lay hold on eternal life? Yes. Wow. Wow, that was a, that was a scary, I understand. Sometimes it's like that. Do you want to lay hold on eternal life? Yes. Praise the Lord. Do you want to have that right eternal investment? Praise the Lord, yes. Then you've got to be a soldier. In closing, let let us see together how the soldier, which is what God has called us to be, how the soldier can teach us how to place our investment in eternity and not in this world. Number one, you know what the soldier does? The soldier fights. The soldier fights. But guys, I, I need you to hear this. The soldier fights, but not for himself. The soldier fights, but he doesn't fight for himself. Just as the slave works for his master, the soldier fights for his king. It's all for the king. The soldier fights in submission to his master, and interestingly enough, he follows the instruction of his teacher. Number one, the soldier fights, but not for himself. Number two, a soldier is fighting for a kingdom. Not only does he fight, but a soldier fights for a kingdom but the kingdom is not his own. Just like the slave, he has been bought with a price. Guys, this contrasts with the rich man who, who the, the, the rich who are fighting to build their own kingdoms. The soldier has no interest in building his own kingdom. The soldier is fighting and he's fighting for a kingdom and it's not his, it's the Lord's. I'm fighting for a king and I'm fighting for his kingdom. 
The soldier must battle knowing that the battle is not his own. If, if the soldier loses this mindset, if we begin to lose the mindset that, that, that this battle, it's not mine, but it's, a, it's the battle of the Lord's. When I lose this mindset, I will also lose the motivation to continue fighting. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is Paul recognized that the fighting was good even if the crown didn't come now. Paul wasn't fighting for for today. Paul was fighting for another time. Paul wasn't fighting for for himself. He was fighting for his king, for his kingdom. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them also that love is appearing. Number three, a soldier uses none of his own resources other than his body and yet has perfect provision. As a soldier, as you enter into the battle, there is nothing that you need to bring to the table because the Lord has provided you with everything you need. All he asks of you is will you offer your body as a living sacrifice unto the work? The soldier realizes his body belongs to the king and because of this, he must steward it well as a good soldier. And the soldier, he has no concern for personal riches. And so now as the slave, I could care less with the master. I'm gonna do everything I can for that individual. The slave doesn't care anymore. The slave realizes he's a soldier. The soldier has no concern for personal riches because his king provides for his every need. Why do I need money? My king provides everything. Oh, but we forgot that, didn't we, Christian? The king feeds him, and the king gives him a place to rest. Whatever the soldier needs to be successful, the king has provided. The king provides the weapons to win the war, and the king provides the intelligence as well. And number four, a soldier is invested in the expansion of the kingdom. The kingdom expansion brings greater glory and honor to his king. This is the duty of the soldier. Not the people, not that people would know the name of the soldier, but that people would know the name of the king. He takes land, the the soldier takes land, but not for himself, the land is not his own, but the king communes in the land with those who steward it well. Man, the soldier, as he fights, he realizes that this fight is not for me, but it's for my king. And by God's grace, I will be used to expand his kingdom. And yet throughout it all, he knows that with every every place of ground that that, that the, the kingdom of God advances, that it's not for himself. The land is not his own, but the king communes in the land with those who steward it well. In all these ways, the soldier contrasts the temporally-minded believer. They recognize that they belong to someone else, and their work as it relates to the gospel ministry is unto the Lord. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art.
be thou my vision. The soldier fights for another city. He is an ambassador for another throne. Let's have the praise team come forward and we're going to close in a time of of introspection. I'd ask that every head bowed, every eye closed.